Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We're on a Smart Talk road trip today at Mount Hope Estate and Winery between Mannheim and Lebanon. You could call this the holiday edition of Smart Talk Road Trips. Over the next hour, we'll be talking about collecting and displaying all things Christmas, holiday customs from the Pennsylvania Dutch or Germans, and learn more about uh, Mount Hope and talk about some board games, or at least a family that is uh, famous for board games, coming up within the next hour as well. But up front, the largest collection and display of Christmas antiques, ornaments, and decorations can be found at the National Christmas Center Family Attraction and Museum in Paradise, Lancaster County. The founder, Jim Morrison, is with us today. Mr. Morrison, thank you for being with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, sitting next to you with a long white beard, you have a red coat on, you have a a black, uh, you told me it is a stove type, uh, stove top hat, or pipe hat, that's right, stove pipe hat. You're, you're really in the season, and it just makes me feel all uh, Christmassy. Just sitting next to you in front of, here in Mount Hope, in front of the Christmas trees and the fireplaces, it's beautiful. Well, thank you. You know, Christmas is in our hearts all the time. And, uh, you know, just uh, being able to walk and visit people and see people and get a smile on their face. So I try to be Santa all year long. The National Christmas Center in Paradise, it's located along Route 30 in in Paradise in, in Lancaster County. Uh, it, it's tough to describe on radio because you have so much I said one of the biggest collections on the East Coast. My guess is maybe the biggest nationally. Well, I don't know, but lots of people collect Christmas and love Christmas, and uh, I'm meeting so many people that have, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, ten trees that they put up each year, and there's a lot of love for Christmas and collecting out there. So how did you get started collecting well, I guess I was born. Uh, <laughs> so, in other words, it was fate. <laughs> uh, as a child, my uh, parents hid the tree in the neighbor's garage and uh, went to bed with an empty stocking, and in the morning, Santa had been there. My parents were up all night, you know, setting it all up and putting the trains up, and uh, never thanked my parents, but uh, I thanked Santa Claus. And then I saw Christmas changing with the malls, and... The little shops and towns weren't doing as much, and uh, that feeling was kind of changing, and people put their trees up after Thanksgiving, and I even would see trees out in the trash on Christmas Day, and uh, couldn't understand it because I, I remembered all the magic that I had. And so the, the Christmas Center has been a dream for 45 or 50 years. I want to preserve Christmas. I want the magic to come to the children that uh, come in to see us. And what I didn't realize, that little child is still in all of us, that little Christmas uh, child that uh, our memories are there. And and that's what we, you know, put at the Christmas Center. It's it's all filled with memories and tradition and history and a little bit of learning there and then the real meaning of Christmas. You know, I have to say that uh, with your appearance of long white beard and bushy uh, eyebrows, and you know, you do look like Kris Kringle. You know, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm not the first person to tell you that. But just a suggestion: some of those people who put Christmas trees in their trash cans Christmas Day, I think you should have showed up at the door, knocking <laughs> on the door, and you know, kind of faking some outrage, saying, "Hey, what's with the Christmas tree?" I'll bet they wouldn't do that any any longer. But when <laughs> when you started collecting, how old were you when you started collecting Christmas memorabilia? I, I um, t- 
two weeks. Uh, our Christmas started Christmas morning, and uh, it lasted for two weeks. And once in a while, I'd widen up. It would last three weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, my mother would take the tree down when I was at school. And, uh, you know, but uh, the trees would be thrown out and uh, on trash day, and I'd go trash picking the trees. I'd find some tinsel and ornaments and... Uh, one time I found a string of lights and I put them in a little box. And then I noticed uh, in our backyard, Santa would cut the top of the tree off because it wouldn't fit in the living room. And I'd take that tree and put a little um, wooden base on it and then hang my ornaments, my found ornaments. Uh, I think the first time I ever said a, a word that I shouldn't, I think it would have been damn or something. But... It was a tree that didn't have anything. It was totally stripped, and I didn't get any of my uh, secondhand ornaments off of it. <laughs> Do you remember what some of those first ornaments were? Do you still have them, too? Um, that, no, I was really small then, but uh, I would get some uh, money from my aunts. I'd get a dollar and a card, and uh, I'd take it to the store. I have things that I bought when I was seven years old, and I'm I'm right there right now buying them. Well, I have them in the, the museum, and it's just memories. Everybody has something that they remember from their childhood that's really really special to them. Do you remember what those items were that you uh, bought at seven? Yeah, uh, little uh, cardboard houses at uh, uh, Woolworths in Philadelphia. And then another time I went up just before Christmas and there were glass figural light bulbs and uh, they were 37 cents each. And after Christmas I had my dollars and I went up and they were marked down to 17 cents, so I bought all nine of them. And I took them home and <laughs> discovered they were this, the, the larger light bulbs that wouldn't screw into our uh, lights that, you know, when one burned out, the whole string did. Oh, yeah. so, I'd like to know who, who invented that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I, um, I found them when, we, when I went up and took all the Christmas things. One day I went home... Uh, I was in the service, actually, just out of the service, and my mother said that my sisters were going up in the attic and taking the, what they wanted in the Christmas things, and mother said, I know how much you love them. You take what you want first. I took everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have it. I have to say, I was afraid what you were going to say is, because there's so many of us whose mothers cleaned out the attic and threw things away that yeah. 20 years later we thought, oh, I wish I would have saved that. I'm glad that your mother thought of that. And So, you know, you, you mentioned Woolworths, and this is always one of the first things I think of at the National Christmas Center is that you have a Woolworths display. And it is not just a display. It is taken from an actual Woolworths, right? Well, um, I found uh, cases and... Uh I actually found a 29-foot Woolworth sign up in Rochester, New York, from a store. Um, it was 1927, and in the 50s, they replaced the uh, uh, metal signs with plastic. And uh, I've got that, and I've got one of the wonderful gondolas. You would go into Woolworths, and there were little glass dividers, and all the merchandise was out, and they would actually have a cash register right there. This is before they had the registers at the at the exit doors. You know, every department had its own register, and uh, we have a, an old brass cash register. And actually, the very first five and ten in the world was downtown Lancaster. Uh, he opened in 1879 with the nickel store, and the next year he added 10 cent goods. And I have some things that were actually sold in that store. I talked to uh, the daughter of the display manager and uh, have some pictures of that very first store. And uh, the first Woolworth building in the world was downtown Lancaster, eight, nine, uh, 18, 1900, and 10 years before the Woolworth building was built in New York. But, uh, and I think a lot of people point to that. I say a lot of people. I think if you look it up, 
as that Woolworths as being the very first five and dime in the world. Yes, yes. And and Woolworth actually turned retailing upside down. He put merchandise out. He put good merchandise with uh, uh, it was you know with quality and at a price that people could afford. So there is so much to describe at the National Christmas Center. Uh, it's not just decorations. It's not just antiques. If you could keep, give the 60-second description of the National Christmas Center, what would it be? Memories and tradition, and uh, it's part of all of our Christmases. It's, it's just uh, we take you from Santa Claus, but I, I tell people that Santa Claus is carrying on the ministry of St. Nicholas 1,700 years ago. He lived, uh, and... Uh, you know, uh, we take you into imagination. You go into the North Pole. We've all dreamed of the North Pole. Well, this is out of a child's imagination. And then there's a storybook village to go through and a big mountain of toy trains. Everybody loves the crane gardens. And then we have 300 nativities and exploring the the, the birth of Christ. We have, I think, one of the finest nativities in the country Uh it's hand carved in northern Italy in the late 1800s, and uh, the carving is spectacular. I see people walking by it and without looking, but it's something that should be at the Met in New York. Uh, St. Patrick's Church in uh, New York has a smaller version of it, but we have standing camels and bagpipers, and then at the very last, we have artifacts from the time of Christ, the widow's mite. Uh, pottery, glassware, the reality of it. We take you on a journey from Nazareth to the first Christmas. I would say, and just a, a personal observation, that uh, even if you didn't have the modern-day Christmas decorations and memorabilia, and by modern day, say the last 150 years, uh, last 200 years, the nativity display itself would be enough to bring people in just because you have, you know, you mentioned the one from Italy, but you have nativity scenes from all over the world, right? There are 300 of them, and we have 150 from all over the world, uh, uh, non-Christian countries in the folk art of each country, and everyone is different. We have one from China with Ming trees and uh, uh, one from Laos with... Uh, a little Laotian hut, and the Christ child is in a hanging basket, and they're bringing wild boars to see the child and because they don't have sheep there. And uh, it just, there's such a variety, and, and, and it's kind of wonderful to see the this, this celebration in each country, non-Christian countries. It, it just, you know, everyone is different. Well, Jim... As you mentioned, this brings a lot of joy and has brought a lot of joy to many, many people over the years. But an announcement uh, just a few months ago that wasn't so joyous, that after the new year that the National Christmas Center, uh, well, the plans are right now to uh, close, to, to shut down. What happened? It's just not bringing enough money in to pay, you know, the, the mortgage and my... Uh, Two partners that have invested their money uh, have just, you know, uh, they're tired and, you know, re retirement. And uh, so we're trying to pass it on. And uh, well, there's some people interested. I, I just think it, it should stay in Lancaster. We don't want to move in any place. Um, People, I didn't realize that uh, until this year that people come in and they're coming over and telling me how much, how important it is for their family celebrations. And some people uh, break out into tears. I had no idea that it's touched so many people, you know. Uh, so we're trying to keep it open and uh, find someone that can help us. Well, let's let's hope that happens, Jim. I want to thank you for being with us today, and thank you for all the happiness and joy that you have brought to people uh, from all over the world. Uh, and, and you know, the thing is, it's, as you said, Christmas all year round. The National Christmas Center is open all year round. I imagine that you do get a little bit busier during this time of year, but uh, 
for everything that you've done and the joy that you have brought. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, and Merry Christmas to everyone. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality. And welcome back to the Smart Talk Road Trip. We are broadcasting live from Mount Hope Estate in Winery. And I, I kind of have to give, uh, I don't know, if you have an opportunity to, to stop by this morning or any other time during the holidays or all year round, uh, Renaissance Fair. I mean, a lot of people nowadays uh, associate uh, Mount Hope with the Renaissance Fair. But Mount Hope Estate and Winery is located on Route 72 between Mannheim and Lebanon, right off the Pennsylvania Turnpike, exit 277 of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. You can actually see it from the Turnpike, but uh, I really encourage you to stop by at this time of year. This mansion is just decorated beautifully. We had some carolers here a little bit earlier. I assume they're still here, but uh, a fireplace with a fire in it, every room with a Christmas tree, and just a a gorgeous setting. And I think that uh, you and your family would really enjoy it. Also, want to thank Roof Advisory Group for support of uh, Smart Talk Road Trips. We couldn't do this without Roof Advisory Group. Now, there are so many traditions and customs that families have during the holiday season. Many have been taken from German culture, and here in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch or Germans. Joining us now is Patrick Donmoyer, who is director of the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania. Professor Donmoyer, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. Okay, now, I'm a little bit disappointed, I have to admit, that, uh, you know, Patrick Don Moyer told me just a few minutes ago that uh, he often plays um, Belschnickel. Yes, that is right. But I'm disappointed in that he said, I thought about coming in character, but decided <laughs> not to. I, yeah, I know it's radio, but they're, they're, taking, they're taking pictures as we speak. So, okay, first of all, let's start with Belschnickel. What is that? Sure. He is the uh, original Christmas visitor in this area. In the 18th century, when people were coming from Central Europe, people coming from what is today Germany and Switzerland, uh, and even parts of Alsace, France, they were bringing with them some traditions that would later define what we have here in Pennsylvania. One of those was that there was a visitor that would go door to door and visit the children, and he was a disciplinarian. He was not the kind Santa Claus that we're used to. He, in fact, was a grouchy guy. And in the Central Rhine, this particular character was referred to as Peltznickel. And that is the title that we have for the Belschnickel in this area today. A disciplinarian. Okay, so what was the thinking behind that? Well, the idea was... It's not exactly a joyous Christmas, you know? (laughs) You're absolutely right. You know, the idea was that he was not only a gift giver, which would reward the kids who had been good, Uh but he would come and he was dressed in this terrifying outfit. He would have soot smeared on his face. He'd have either a bullwhip or switches. And so the kids that were bad oftentimes would communicate with Belschnickel as he was entering into the house saying, pick out that one right there. He needs some, he needs some behavior modification. And, <laughs> and this, was, this was such a, a mythical, legendary personality that people just, you know, the kids really would get into this. And the, some kids would feel guilty about what they had done throughout the year, and it would serve as a way to modify their behavior a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I've never actually, I've never actually seen Belschnickel. You tell me that you have, you play the character. Yes, I do. Describe your, in what I was saying about the same impersonation, but your interpretation of Belschnickel. Well, our interpretation of the Belschnickel at the Heritage Center, um, he's a little bit taller than I am because he's wearing these boots, these high boots, and then he's got this fur outfit that weighs about thirty pounds. Makes me look huge. I've got this hat covered in fur. I've got antlers. It's hard to fit through doorways. I have to go sideways and then turn my head suddenly. It's very, very scary for kids who are not familiar with it. But kids who have seen a little bit of it, they get excited. Because they know that, in general, the Belschnickel doesn't use his switches all that much. In fact, 
at the Heritage Center, I tend to use them more on the adults because the adults play along, they have a good time. The kids are just scared enough by the character. And of course, I come bringing candy, asking them if they've been good throughout the year. And this is just what they used to do in the Rhine River Valley. Oftentimes, the kids in the past would memorize Bible verses or say a little prayer to show how pious they were and uh, expect a reward. Nowadays, kids don't really do that sort of a thing. But I always try to ask them what they've done to be nice to other people. And uh, I have a completely different persona. I have a very, very gruff voice. Um, you would not know that it's me. People well, who've known me for years can't tell. Since it is radio, let me hear that voice. Oh, well, this is a bell schnickel right here. Have you been good this year, Scott? <laughs> I'm glad you don't have switches. Yeah, yeah. You, you should be glad I left bell schnickel at home. That's right. He's pretty no, awful. I'm just curious with that outfit, uh, if you've ever been arrested. No, no, but I have warned the campus police at Kutztown to let them know if you get reports of a big scary guy with switches, uh, it's okay. Everything's under control. He's tame, sort of. A lot of fun with that, uh, Patrick. But I, I have to say that uh, one of the things that that uh, would probably surprise many people, especially in this region of the state, is how many or how much of the tradition that we celebrate today came from Pennsylvania Dutch, Pennsylvania German, or back in Europe, some of the, the, the regions that, that you described. I mean, there's a lot, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And, and two things in particular. The Christmas visitor, St. Nicholas, was something very distinct to Central Europe. Uh, the Christmas tree as well. We have to remember that when the English arrived in Pennsylvania, they were mostly Quakers, and they didn't observe Christmas the same way. In fact, it was the Victorian period that really transformed the British Isles' observance of Christmas and made it a little bit more continental. And uh, that's an interesting thing, because we often trace most of our traditions to you know, Anglo tradition. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is one really important way that you can see the German influence in North America. And, and it's funny you mentioned that because so much, and we see it even here today at Mount Hope, so much of an old fashioned Christmas is celebrated in Victorian English style. Absolutely. And we have to remember, too, that during the Victorian period, it was popular among the English to tell ghost stories. Mm. And that's why you get a Christmas carol, why it's got a ghost theme to it. So there's some very big cultural differences there. We don't do that anymore, but we still kind of enjoy the fact that it's a feast of lights. There's light, there's darkness, and so you get a little bit of a mixture of both. You mentioned the Christmas tree. Tell us about the Christmas tree, because one part of it, and I've actually seen this several places over the years, an upside-down Christmas tree, a Christmas tree hanging from the ceiling. Uh, that, I assume, was not the original way in which it happened, but talk about why we have actually bring a tree into the house at Christmas. Well, bringing greens into the house at this time of year dates back to the Roman era. So this is not just something that's unique to Christians. This is something that even predates that. And it's, it's because of the fact that these are evergreens, and there's something that, of course, especially in Central Europe, we're going to be um, you know, looking great even during this time of year. Now, the development here in Pennsylvania, there's not a lot of good documentation from the 18th century. We're certain that people did this. But what we start to see is especially early 19th century documentation of trees. Oftentimes they were um, centerpieces in towns. Um, people would report on it in the newspapers in 1820s and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but there are a lot of incarnations that we don't really know about. Um, oftentimes the early trees would have had candles on them, things like that. Some even, and this is kind of a popular thing in Pennsylvania because so many people were Lutherans among the Pennsylvania Dutch, they even even tried to say that Martin Luther was the inventor of the Christmas tree, um, which is not true, but there are many pictures of Luther's Christmas tree with Luther and his family and a uh, little Christmas tree with lights all over it, mm. uh, all little candles. Um, but the upside-down tree is something that's kind of taken off just because people are curious about it. Um, it's not an inversion of Christmas. It's just you put the tree in a different location. You hang it from the ceiling. And there are early prints from the 19th century that show some form of evergreen orb or um, you know, sprig hanging from the ceiling. And uh, it was kind of a, you know, a situation where it was above, it was out of the way. You didn't put gifts under it the same way as we do today, but it was just another way to, to celebrate. Uh, something else that I have heard about uh, Christmas trees that were hanging from the ceiling is that a lot of times there were edible items on those Christmas trees. And, okay, even though you know, the night before Christmas may have romanticized uh, a mouse that you couldn't hear in the house, no one wanted mice eating up their Christmas trees. And <laughs> that was another reason that they put them uh, hanging from the tree. Absolutely. Or from the ceiling, I should say. Absolutely, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, in Central Europe especially, um, you know, Germans are known for their baked goods, and uh, it was common to cut out little individual emblems. Some of these were biblical in nature. Some were the types of things we expect today, stars and things like that. But 
that was another way for sure. That makes a lot of sense. And by the way, our audience, if you have a question or comment about uh, Christmas traditions or anything that uh, you've thought of over the years, wonder why you were hanging that on your tree or putting it out front of your house, we have a microphone here. Just step right up to the microphone, and uh, you can ask a question of uh, Patrick Dunmore here as well. Second Christmas, Day of Festivities. Yeah, sure. Um, so at one point in time, this was in the 19th century, um, Pennsylvania government had to actually um, acknowledge the fact that so many people among the Pennsylvania Dutch were observing a second day of Christmas that they actually had to shut down the government the day after Christmas. So the state assembly wouldn't meet or anything like that because nobody would show. A good half of the people were Pennsylvania Dutch. So nothing's changed. And, 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 essentially. <laughs> hey, I guess. So, yeah. It, that was a, that was government a shut shot. down for a different reason. But this was something that the English simply couldn't understand. Um, but this really comes from the fact that the Pennsylvania Dutch celebrated Christmas on Christmas Day, typically with a dinner in the house and that sort of a thing. A little bit of Visiting, but mostly it was centered around the church activities. And people thought, well, you know, this is a time of festivities. We got to have a second day so we can go out and do all the things we want to do, like sledding and whatever else. Um, people used to do shooting matches too, which probably wouldn't be so Very popular Christmas-y. today. But yeah. exactly, people would do competitions and things like that. And so it was a great time for people to go to each other's houses um, and be merry. Mm-hmm. We have a member of our audience, Johnny. Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm sorry that the people, uh, the radio audience, did not hear the musical. Uh, singing that we had earlier, the group uh, dressed in Victorian uh, garb and so on. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Because that certainly uh, adds, added a lot in the uh, uh, 19th century. Uh, and the uh, I'm not saying this very well. Um, the 19th century, and you know, when, since they didn't have radio, they didn't have TV, and of course, this was very much. Uh, in the particular season. I wonder if you would talk a little bit yeah, about Yeah, the carolers. Sure, absolutely. Caroling is actually something that you see all over the place in Europe. You're going to find it among... Even um, today? Yeah, well, definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this dates back very far. Um, in fact, there are a number of different traditions where people would dress up like the three wise men, and they mm-hmm. would go from house to house and carol. Um, sometimes you'll also find people dressing up like different aspects of the, uh, um, the nativity scene. You'd have live nativities where people would also do caroling and things like that. So throughout Europe, and this isn't just just among German-speaking people, you find this in Italy and many different places. People would knock and go door to door. And this actually is pretty interesting because this leads into something else that was also developing here in Pennsylvania. And this was a unique type of masquerade that would happen that often involved singing and going door to door. People would expect something to eat and something to drink. In Pennsylvania, they referred to this as Belschnickeling. And this was a collective activity. This was not the same thing as the Belschnickel who was dressed in furs and uh, came and terrorized people. This was, um, this was actually something a little bit different. People tended to put on masks and crazy outfits, and um, they would take to the streets. And this was common 19th century, but especially 20th century. Um, you saw this up until like the 1920s and 30s, very, very popular. And with the invention of the railroad, this allowed people locally to hop on the railroad, and they would be able to go to uh, neighboring towns, and they would go all over the place. This was really big in northern PA and central PA, um, and uh, something that most people have forgotten about today. But if you see masks in old antique stores around here, you may not be looking at a Halloween mask. You might be looking at a Christmas mask, believe it or not, mm. from Belschnickling. Jim Marson, do you have a mask, Christmas mask at the museum? Yeah, he's Jim is saying He knows yes. exactly he what does, we're talking about. Exactly what you're talking about. All right, here's one that uh, I, I don't know. I didn't realize that this was part of uh, a tradition Thought it was more of a children's thing, but uh, animals speaking at midnight. (laughs) Well, this is interesting because there's a lot of different perceptions about the time of year of Christmas because folks believe that the atmosphere itself was blessed. Um, the dew, for instance, was considered to be sacred. It would be gathered on things and eaten, uh, like bread or things like that, in order to be able to bless you throughout the year. So the idea that the animals are speaking is, is kind of an allusion to the live nativities, so to speak. Um, and in Europe, they would put on these plays that would actually, the animals would be characters, and they would be people dressed up, and they would speak, and sometimes they would be the comic relief. Um, so it's interesting to see that these traditions kind of came through the cultural memory, so to speak, infusing here in Pennsylvania. And folks believe that if you snuck out to the barn at midnight and listen very, very carefully that you would hear these animals say something. But they didn't always give good news. Um, Some local stories say that, you know, there's numerous discussions of farmers going out 
there to listen. And then the animals portend the farmer's death or something like that. So again, going back in the direction of some of these scary stories associated with Christmas. But this is just one of many things that people would do um, associated with this idea that the holy time of year created unexpected results. Some people believe that a well would, for instance, turn for five minutes after midnight would turn to wine. Um, miracles would happen. Um, some folks, again, believed that if you put uh, items out that could get dew on them and you would consume them, it would keep you from getting sick. They did the same thing for the livestock. They would put uh, hay and straw out there. The hay would be consumed by the animals to keep them from getting lice. The straw would help to keep bugs out of the bedding. And uh, so they would put this out, and the very atmosphere itself was believed to bless it. This contributes to one other really kind of unsavory aspect of these beliefs, and that is that folks believe that you shouldn't do any cleaning between Christmas and New Year's. And this was not just for the house, this was also for the barn. So you were not supposed to clean out because the atmosphere was imparting its blessings. This also applied to your clothing. So there were many people who might change their outer shirt, but they would not change their underwear between Christmas and New Year's. And there are, this is well documented in Berks and Lehigh counties, that there are people who would be afraid to go to New Year's parties because of how bad they smelled. Um, And the idea was that if you changed your underwear, that you would end up with sores or piles, and nobody wants those. And that was the belief. So the idea was that if these are the blessings in the atmosphere of Christmas, you don't want to reject that. You want to accept that and keep it with you throughout the rest of the year. (laughs) My, how things have changed. <laughs> Some things for the better. Well, see, I, yeah, I, I, you, I hope that the underwear was changed New Year's Day because there was so much uh, pork and sauerkraut being eaten uh, New Year's Day. <laughs> I hope the underwear didn't stay on beyond that. Pork and sauerkraut. Where, I mean, that's not a Christmas thing. That's a, but it's it a is this, this holiday tradition. Well, there's two things about it. First of all, um, typically among the Pennsylvania Dutch and most other cultures um, in northern latitudes, you're going to find that people are doing their butchering around the coldest time of the year because it just means that the atmosphere itself is not per se blessed, but it's refrigerated. And so it allows you to make sure that you can do this kind of work um, and not have the meat spoil. So this is one of the few times out of the year that you're going to have things like fresh pork, tenderloins, and stuff like that available. So many times people would take uh, the pork and the sauerkraut. The sauerkraut's also really important because this is something that typically takes some time to ferment. Um, Your last cabbage crop would have typically uh, been towards fall. You're getting that, and then you're letting it ferment, and it's ready by by New Year's, by Christmas in that time area. Um, So these are important things, but the mythology behind it is really important too. The belief was that you wanted to eat pork because pork roots forward. And... uh, when, it, when, when, it, when the, uh, the pig is eating, as opposed to a chicken which scratches backwards. And so this forward um. thinking was meant to advance the year. And this also goes along with an old Pennsylvania Dutch statement. Um, people would say, and this means uh, have a good rutch into the new year. And for those of you who are Pennsylvania, <laughs> you wouldn't have to have that word rutch translated at all, yeah. but it literally means kind of to wiggle or slide or... or First, Scuffle along a little bit. The first time I heard "stop rooching around," I was like, "What?" <laughs> but, it's but it's I, a Pennsylvania word that's that, uh, that's been incorporated into the English language in this area. Patrick, this has just been so fascinating. This, these are just a, a, a few examples of uh, what you could find at uh, the, the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, one more that I did want to ask about: Chris Kringle. You know, we have. You know, you talked about Belschnickel. But, uh, you know, what we picture today is Santa Claus has had the name St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. But Kris Kringle actually came from this region as well, or at least this heritage. Yes. And there are many reasons why people suspect that this name was developed. Originally, one of the visitors that would come along with Belschnickel and some of the other characters that you find throughout Europe was the Christ Kindle which is the Christ child, the little Christ child. And in parts of Central Europe, they still do this, where um, it's typically a youthful person, usually a a woman, actually, and she would put candles all around her head like a crown. And the idea was that this was some youthful, um, you know, representation of the Christ child, and she would be a gift giver, and then Belschnickel would be kind of the scary one to accompany her. Um, So this is an odd character in and of itself, but um, over time, that word Christ Kindle was appropriated by people who spoke English and started to change its, its, uh, its meaning. And people started saying Chris Kringle. And as you can see, here in Pennsylvania, we have nothing left of this Chris to kindle, um, uh, you know, tradition left. There, there's no Christ child to visit people's homes. We do have St. Nicholas. So this title eventually got woven into the St. Nicholas story and became kind of his secondary persona. 
And again, Patrick, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, at this time of year, I'm sure that you do get a lot of visitors at uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch or German uh, uh, Heritage Center, Cultural Heritage Center. But talk a bit, a little bit about that, uh, what you're looking for as far as visitors who, who want to come and see this. Sure, absolutely. Our big event that we have every year is always the first week of December, and it's called Christmas on the Farm. And it's all about coming down home in the farm and seeing the best of Pennsylvania Dutch Christmas traditions, decorations, folk art. We have live demonstrators, musicians all kinds of things happening on site, um, activities in the Pennsylvania Dutch dialect as well. So there's many different things to, in, to do and to enjoy, and lots of great community members come out who offer their talents and their abilities uh, to share a little bit about the, uh, the region and uh, what it has that's so specific to it uh, for Christmas. Patrick Dunmoyer, director of the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center at Kutztown University of Pennsylvania. Patrick, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. It's You're listening pleasure. to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for N. PR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're on a Smart Talk road trip today at uh, Mount Hope Estate and Winery in uh, Lancaster County. And I want to thank uh, Roof Advisory Group for uh, their support of uh, providing uh, the, their support for uh, Smart Talk road trips. I have to say that there may be no more beautiful place at the holidays than Mount Hope Estate and Winery. And it's been that way for years. If one was to choose a location for an old-fashioned Christmas, this probably would be it. And from Mount Hope, I want to you know, talk about uh, the estate and uh, uh, celebrating the holidays with Candace Smith, who is the communication director for Mount Hope Estate. Ms. Smith, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also, we have a very special guest who is uh, William Parker, the brother of Theodore and Dorothy Parker, designer of uh, board games and... Uh, when you've heard the name Parker Brothers over the years, and one in one game in particular, uh, Mr. Parker had something to do with that. Uh, Mr. Parker, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. How are you doing today? Absolutely fantastic. Well, that's good to hear, because I, I noticed that you were one of the carolers today, too. Yes, I was. I'm not going to ask you to belt out a, a solo or anything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, but let me start with you, Candice. Um, the holidays at Mount Hope, I mean, this has to be something that you and everyone on staff looks forward to. We know the people of central Pennsylvania look forward to. What's your whole theme, your whole idea behind celebrating the holidays? Well, as you said, uh, the setting just lends itself so perfectly to it. We've been talking about Victorian Christmases, and when you walk into this place, even when it isn't fully decorated the way it is right now with the 12 Christmas trees each um, signifying one of the 12 days of Christmas, you, you get a sense of, of, of it. But when we come to the holiday season, it just, the magic happens is really what, what we say. This is our 34th season of having a Christmas event inside the mansion. Um, we changed it this year to an interactive dinner theater. Everything that we do here is, is, is interactive. And as, as everyone here probably noticed, um, the characters that we had here for the, the breakfast that we enjoyed earlier, it's interactive. They played some parlor games with them. They had the caroling. And it just it comes together in, in such a way that I don't know that it could happen as beautifully as it does anywhere else. Well, you know, I, I think it is very noticeable when you mentioned the 12 Christmas trees, mm-hmm. that uh, when you walk from, and each one is beautiful, by the way, but when you walk from one tree to the another, to another, uh, you see, I saw the golden eggs out there on, <laughs> on one tree. And, it, you know, it, it's, after a while, you, you, even if you don't know it, you realize, okay, there's a theme here, yep. but it is so beautiful <laughs> to be able to see that. Yeah, it took uh, well over 100 man hours to, to get that done. And uh, three people, did it. So 100 man hours, three people doing it. It was really incredible to watch it happen. <laughs> now, when you decorate for, for Christmas, and as you said, it's uh, decorated in the Victorian era of, of Christmas, did any research come into that? Or, you know, how historically accurate are you in trying to, uh, you know, with your decorations? Because, I mean, for most of us, we walk in and think we were in the middle of the 1850s. Right, right. I think the, the, the overriding thought behind it is the opulence. Victorian Christmas decorations are 
you can see the trees, they're dripping with, with decorations. And that's kind of the number one thing that we go behind is the opulence. But the thought behind it is one person's vision of what she's going to see for the next year. So you come year after year, the trees change, the theme changes and all of that. Um, but again, that, that overriding, um, overabundance is really, is really where we go. So William Parker, maybe I didn't, uh, I wanted to make it clear that, uh, yeah, you were part of uh, the Parker Brothers, and That's Monopoly right. was the game that I was re- referring to. Um, but uh, I only gave you an opportunity to say hello. You need to talk a little bit more about yourself and your family. Oh, well, uh, it's uh, myself, uh, Bill Parker, and uh, my brother, Ted, and our sister, Dot. And, uh, well, we, uh, we've uh, started uh, coming up with games Earlier on, and uh, yes, Monopoly was the first. Uh, it started out as uh, it was called banking, but nobody wanted that. Why? Uh, I, I'm not well. entirely sure. But uh, finally, someone picked it up and uh, changed it to Monopoly. Uh, but we also have Clue, uh, Trivial Pursuit. That's uh, one of my favorites. And uh, even the Ouija board. That's one of ours. See, the Ouija board would kind of fit in with uh, some of the stories we heard earlier. This Belschnickel guy, I think, would mm. use a, a Ouija board. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, there are, there are shows, as, as Candace mentioned, dinner theater going on at the Mount Hope Estate and Winery right now. And you play a part in that, right? That's right. That's right. Tell us about your part. Well, uh, well, uh, actually, the, the night is hosted by a very good friend, uh, Freddie. Uh, Fred, well, you would probably recognize him. Uh, he's uh, the heir of the FAO Schwartz Toy Company, mm-hmm. Freddie Schwartz Jr. So, uh, yes, and he's hosting the party, and uh, there's a four-course meal. All wonderful food comes out. Uh, we all get to run around and play games, trying to uh, keep my our sister from... Uh, Ruining everything. She's always causing trouble. Is she a younger sister? Uh, a bit, yes. Oh, yeah, that's what always happens, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yes, we do that. We, uh, we play games. We try to come up with new games on the spot. Uh, we play vi- uh, classic Victorian parlor games, such as uh, charades or um, yes and no, uh, 20 questions, stuff like that. Um, yeah, just have a... Uh, uh, grand old time. So how did the Parker family become so... Uh, enthralled with uh, parlor games, with board games, and it sounds like a, a fun family. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, just uh, growing up, we always enjoyed playing games with each other, and uh, we thought, you know, we enjoy this. I'm sure that other people will enjoy this as well. So we would just, uh, we started trying to mass produce these games, and it, they took off. So, uh, Monopoly, as I mentioned, you mentioned you know, a lot of other uh, very popular games and uh, you know, today that are bestsellers, but Monopoly is the one that has been around for so long. Mm-hmm. And you know, a little bit of trivia here, as you mentioned, started uh, as being called banking yes. and then became Monopoly. How did you come out? You know, you, you have the Atlantic City uh, kind of tie-in with the, with the, you know, the boardwalk and all that. So, how did you come up with you and your brother and your sister come up with Monopoly? Well, uh, we would. Uh, hmm, <laughs> that's a good question. We would uh, we'd sit around and we'd uh, it start out with just uh, us trying to basically get each other's money, obviously, and uh, but uh, so it started as poker. So is this is quite true. This is quite true. But uh, you know, we decided to spice it up. We started out with just things around the uh, our own hometown, and uh, just sort of spread out from there. Well, where is your hometown? Uh, Salem, Salem, Massachusetts. Okay. Oh, but but you still use some Atlantic City uh, references. Mm. Why is that? Well, it's a little bit more. Uh, more known, more well-known. Ah, than uh, Salem. <laughs> Salem, right. Yeah, Monopoly would be different if you tied it to the witch trials and all <laughs> oh, that. <yeah>. Very different. <laughs> Rather than go to jail, go straight to jail, we go to a hangman's news, you know. A little bit different. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Mr. Parker is uh, one of the characters uh, performing here at, uh, at, at Mount Hope. I want to thank you very much. Uh, by the way, this is really uh, Pete Hedberg, right? Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> Let me hear your real voice for just a second. Uh, this is my real voice. Ah, okay, <laughs> all right. 
right. Okay. <laughs> See, no, I, I thought it was much different that uh, you were. Uh, I worked very hard on that Boston accent. <laughs> but Candace, this is the kind of thing that I think is just so much fun for a lot of people mm-hmm. that uh, it's it's not just looking around at the decorations, but it is interactive in that uh, you know the dinner theater. I'm curious about the menu when uh, William talked about the delicious food. Mm-hmm. Is it? Modern food, or are there some items on the menu that uh, would go back to the Victorian era? There, there are. Um, we we start the the menu with um, a holiday salad, and then we have a rosemary chicken, um, or we have a tortellini dish for those who are vegetarians, um, and it's served with glazed uh, sweet potatoes and green beans. Uh, the dessert, I think, might be the star of the show. It is, uh, and I mean a brick, of um, gingerbread bread pudding with a vanilla glaze on it. And we serve it um, with uh, some of our hot holiday wine that we produce here. So the, the, the whole thing comes together. I think it, 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 it's, it's just very tasty. So <laughs> what part of that is Victorian? Victorian, um, I would say probably the rosemary chicken is probably the closest thing to, to the re- and the bread pudding. And the, the bread, bread pudding, pudding actually goes bread back. Bread pudding, yeah, yeah, goes back. And you mentioned uh, the hot wine. Mount mm-hmm. Hope has been doing that for years. Yes, we've been producing the holiday wine um, for years. We just brought production back to the estate where we are now um, last May. Um, so it hasn't been produced here since 1980, so we're very proud to be producing back here again on the estate. Let's talk about the estate. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the holidays, but what about the history of the mansion? In, in, in you have no problem calling it a mansion, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. Well, it, it was a, uh, a a summer home. So those of you who are sitting here and having seen it as you came in, if you can imagine, this was a summer home there for, for the Grubb family. They were um, in the iron business. Um, that's where they they got their money. The last uh, member of the Grubb family who owned the property, her name was Daisy Grubb. Uh, we have a picture of her in the in the morning parlor or the pink parlor, and um, she never married, unfortunately. So the uh, the na- the family died off with her, um, but she took great great care of the estate. She loved to entertain. She was the one who built the ballroom onto the estate and the billiard room. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we love to talk about little tidbits of history about the estate. Because she was a female, she wasn't allowed in her own billiard room. So um, if you walk up to the, the huge fireplace in the, in the bar area and you look at the mantle, you'll see carvings in them. And you'll see an eye on one side next to a daisy on either side. And she put those there to remind the men that Daisy is always watching. So there's, there's really cute little things throughout the house that you can, you can find. Heather, we have to get a picture of that before we leave for today. A lot of, by the way, we put a lot of uh, photographs of our Smart Talk road trips on our website, WITF.org. But I have a feeling that today we're going to have many more pictures just because there's so much to, to see. Uh, the Grubb family, when you say they were involved in the uh, iron industry, mm-hmm. did it have to do with Cornwall Furnace or that area? Yes, it did. They they had their they actually had their furnace in Cornwall, so uh, they had kind of the area was theirs, you know, to do with. And if you... If you uh, no, about the Coleman family, the Coleman mm-hmm. Lantern, same, same kind of situation. Both families were uh, wealthy in that iron respect. Yeah. When this is the summer home, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to ask, what was the regular home? It's in Lancaster, and I honestly, I can't remember the name of it, but it is currently used as an art gallery. So you can imagine the, the, the spance of, <laughs> yeah. of that as well. <laughs> How many rooms here in the, in the mansion? Um, I believe originally there were 32 rooms in here. Um, I am lucky enough to have my office in this beautiful building on the third floor so I can see um, out onto the estate um, from all directions. And I'm just below the widow's peak, so it's it's a really great thing. The second and third floors are the offices, and then we utilize this um first floor area for various theater productions that we do. I have heard several of our guests here today say that, uh, okay, I want to move in when they, <laughs> when they walk in. The, so I had to ask the question, how many bedrooms? Yeah. Um, I believe there were five at the time. When I first started working here, the second floor was original the way the first floor is. And I remember um, 
Daisy's bedroom and uh, the huge headboard and the opulence again. I'm going to use that word of the of the furniture. Um, you can still see some of that on, on the first floor here as well. But there was a, a children's room from before. Obviously, she never had children, but there was a children's room, her room, and then you know several other bedrooms. All right, I have to ask this question because you know again some of the stories we heard earlier about ghost stories and things <laughs> like that. Uh, an older house like this, are there any ghost stories? That's the first question people ask really? when they come. Yes. It looks it's... like it should it be <laughs> Should be haunted. Yes. I will say, personally, I do not like to come into the building when it is dark outside. I oh, do a lot on, of loud singing off-key oh. as I'm coming through the building. Um, Secrets being told. <laughs> I have been with the company for 24 years and have seen, heard, smelled things that I can't explain, you know, just by by general explanation. So I'm going to say yes, it is. So, um. <laughs> William, I see you nodding. Oh, yes. I've, I've been here for many years myself, and uh, I've seen some very strange things. <laughs> like what? Uh, uh, just about three years ago, I was in uh, the ballroom. We were rehearsing for a show, and uh, there was a small pile of boards laying along the, the wall there, and uh, one of the boards <laughs> lifted up and... F- oh, jeez. <laughs> and fell down, and uh, it was just, I saw it lift up. It was very bizarre. Even you saw it I actually s- levitate. I saw it lift up and fall back down, yes. Now you're, you're not still in character, are you? <laughs> it was, I keep... Well, yes, my, my accent is, but, but no, uh, no, I saw this, and my scene partner was... I went, oh, my. And she's like, don't tell me. I don't even want to know. Want to <laughs> she know. didn't see it? No, she ah, had her back see, to it. Yeah, well, that's a shame. <laughs> hey, th- this has been a lot of fun today. Uh, I want to thank uh, our, our, our host today, Candace Smith, Communications Director at Mount Hope Estate, William Parker, brother of, uh, he's part of the, the famous Parker family, Theodore and Dorothy Parker, that uh, mischievous little sister, <laughs> designer of board games, including Monopoly. Pete Hedberg is uh, good friends, very close to uh, William Parker. <laughs> want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you very much. And again, thank you to uh, our, our supporter for uh, Smart Talk Road Trips, Roof Advisory Group. Uh, our next Smart Talk Road Trip will actually, and think about this now. January, the Pennsylvania Farm Show. I mean, we're just in the middle of December. We haven't even gotten to Christmas and New Year's yet, but uh, the Pennsylvania Farm Show will be our next uh, Smart Talk road trip. That's January 12th, correct? January 12th is our next Smart Talk road trip. Uh, Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology expanding in downtown Harrisburg and elsewhere. So that's our topic of tomorrow's Smart Talk. Everyone have a nice day. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. 